Yesterday was the first day of summer, but uh, today is God's weekly Sabbath, and of course that means that we are reminded that He is the creator of heaven and earth. It's a memorial of God's creation. It's a sign between God and His people. And it also foreshadows the millennial Sabbath of a thousand years under the rulership of Jesus Christ and the saints. So we are very happy about the meaning of the feasts, the meaning of the holy days, the meaning of the weekly Sabbath, and we realize that God has revealed this awesome, wonderful plan of salvation for all humanity and rejoice in that truth even today. But I want to ask you, do you have the confidence that you will be in the kingdom of God? How can you have that confidence? The answer is by claiming God's promises, because He promises that He is going to bring you into the kingdom. We might take a look at one of those promises, Philippians, uh, the first chapter. It's one of my favorite promises. I hope it's one of yours as well. Because every time we think, oh, well, I don't know if I'm going to make it or not. Well, all you have to do is be committed and, of course, we will talk about your responsibilities today in the sermon as well. But Philippians, the first chapter, verse 3, I thank God upon every remembrance of you. So the Apostle Paul loved the Philippians and prayed for them. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with the... Uh, with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, being confident of this very thing. Do you have that confidence that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ? So God is not going to let you go. If you start to backslide, as they say, or go astray, He's going to correct you in love. He's going to keep you on the track. As, you know, the little child says, I am a work in progress. We're all a work in progress. But God gives us this awesome promise. We'll complete it. The work that He's begun in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So God is working in creating in you this wonderful masterpiece of creation, which is righteous, holy, uh, godly character. Turn to Revelation, the third chapter, Revelation 3. Of course, we have our part in that responsibility of the plan of salvation and God's awesome way of life. Revelation, the third chapter, verse 10. Because you have kept the, my command to persevere. So part of the process that God is working in us is the matter of perseverance. That we persevere to the end. We realize that God requires us to have perseverance and discipline. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell, dwell on the earth, talking about the great tribulation. Turn to 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. So we have our part in God's plan of salvation. We need to persevere. We need to have discipline. And we need to trust God to 
complete the work that He started in us. 1 Corinthians 9, uh, starting with verse 24. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. <laughs> we, we have actions to take place. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. There's a lot of weighty information here. We have to run. You have to be temperate. Uh, Talk about self-control and discipline. Is temperate in all things. Now they do it to attain a perishable crown. All athletes, are they train, and they train rigorously, and they train day and night, and they're, they're disciplining their bodies. But we for an imperishable crown... Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. I'm just not shadow boxing. I'm landing punches where they're going to have an impact. Verse 27, But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So the Apostle Paul says he is disciplining his body to bring it in subjection. And if he didn't, he could become disqualified. So the Apostle Paul says, and the NIV has it this way, I beat my body and make it my slave. The NASU says, but I discipline my body and make it my slave. Well, how do you discipline yourself? We all need to practice godly discipline. And the title of the sermon today is Godly Discipline. If we don't exercise godly discipline, we might become disqualified. The Apostle Paul knew just how important discipline is. By the way, we do have uh, on our uh, website a sermon, uh, The Gift of Discipline. I didn't bring my Android with me, but I just go on the Android and say, Living Church of God sermon, The Gift of Discipline. And immediately, within a couple seconds, YouTube comes up with that sermon. Um, I'll just refer you to the sermon, The Gift of Discipline, uh, that was given November 25th, 2005. I was surprised that it's still available, uh, but I can just get it on my cell phone within five seconds. And it's just amazing the technology that's available. But in today's sermon, we'll discuss applications of discipline in our lives and its relationship to godly character. I'll first begin with my own personal experience with discipline. In 1959, the military draft was active in the United States. I completed my civil engineering degree in Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in January of 1959. But my neighbor and friend, uh, his name was Neil, had graduated from Cornell University, but he didn't want to be drafted. So he took the option of joining the National Guard. That's six months of active duty in the Army training and then on reserve duty for the National Guard for five and a half years and each summer uh, two weeks training. And uh, so he convinced me he did the best he could. He made a positive um, 
approach to his training in the military. He tried to do the, be the best in pull-ups and push-ups and riflery, and he, he, he communicated a positive approach to his training. So I decided to do the same, and I joined the National Guard or became actually active duty in Fort Dix, New Jersey, for basic training in June of 1959. And there I learned certain disciplines. Of course, they put you through very rigorous training. We uh, would crawl under uh, live machine gun fire, for example, and 50-mile uh, uh, hikes with 50-mile, 50 50-pound 50 packs on your back, and uh, exercises every day. But not only that, but you had to make your bed in a certain way and have square corners, and if the sergeant came along, dropped a quarter on the bed, it had to bounce, and uh, he, he, we'd catch it. And then your locker and your foot locker, all had a, everything had a place and everything had to be in its proper place. It was just a, a major discipline. So the Army taught me the quality of discipline, and I was already acquainted with discipline because of football, high school football. I was co-captain of my uh, team in my senior year in high school, and I uh, had to exert exert some leadership during that time. So I was acquainted with the discipline. But discipline applies in so many different areas of life. And uh, one of those areas, of course, that I learned in basic training was making my bed. And that was 1959. And so I've been making my bed now for 60 years. My wife, of course, will help, and uh, she'll uh, perfect what I my imperfections and when we had six or seven pillows, uh, I needed her help, too, but oftentimes she's getting breakfast while I'm making the bed. I thought I held the record of uh, bed-making, but uh, Mr. Davis told me that his mother had him make his bed when he was 14 years old. So he holds a record of 66 or 67 years. I've only been making my bed for about 60 years. But one of the – I'll just ask you uh, – I'll, I'll put it this way. Uh, you don't raise your hands, but how many of you uh, make your bed every morning? How many of you leave your beds unmade? You think about the principle in 1 Corinthians 14.33, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace in all the churches of the saints. So making your bed is just an example of discipline. And that symbol of discipline was published by Admiral William H. McRaven, a Navy SEAL for 36 years. His book was uh, written here, Make Your Bed, uh, Little Things That Can Change Your Life and Maybe the World. He was a Navy SEAL for 36 years. And of course, he describes the rigorous training he had there and many lessons that he learned. Uh, last summer, uh, Mr. Bobby Jocks at the LYP uh, camp, and you heard the announcement uh, by Mr. Strain of the upcoming uh, camp uh, live streaming. Uh, I heard Mr. Bobby Jocks last year. He went through some rigorous training for, it is called swimmer rescues. And he went through rigorous training almost similar to that of the Navy SEALs. He was invited to join the Navy SEALs, but declined knowing that he wanted to preserve his life and didn't want to have to go through uh, the more rigorous uh, requirements. But on May 14, 2014, Admiral McRaven gave the commencement address at the University of Texas at Austin. 
And the university's slogan is, what starts here changes the world. So Admiral McRaven gave ten principles he learned during his Navy SEAL training that applied to the challenges of life. His speech is still on the Internet, I believe, and had millions of views. I'll just read a section uh, from this book. He says, uh, talking about the training of, and the bed making. The bed was as simple as the room, nothing but a steel frame and a single mattress. A bottom sheet covered the mattress. Over that was a top sheet. A gray wool blanket tucked neatly under the mattress provided warmth for the cool San Diego evenings. The second blanket was expertly folded into a rectangle at the foot of the bed. A single pillow made by the lighthouse for the blind was centered at the top of the bed and intersected at 90-degree angle with the blanket at the bottom. This was the standard. Any deviation from this exacting requirement would be cause for me to hit the surf and then roll around on the beach until I was covered head to toe with wet sand, referred to as a sugar cookie. Standing motionless, I could see the instructor out of the corner of my eye. He wearily looked at my bed. Bending over, he checked the hospital corners and then surveyed the blanket and the pillow to ensure they were correctly aligned. Then reaching into his pocket, he pulled out a quarter and flipped it into the air several times to ensure I knew the final test of the bed was coming. With one final flip, the quarter flew high into the air and came down on the mattress with a light bounce. It jumped several inches off the bed, high enough for the instructor to catch it in his hand. So that was the kind of instruction and, and discipline training uh, that Admiral McRaven had as, as just one simple example of discipline. So God gives us discipline in many sections of our lives. Discipline is a vital quality of life, and we must all be practicing it as a part of godly character. We need God's power to practice godly discipline every single day. Turn to Second Timothy, the first chapter. Second Timothy, uh, we have God's power to help us to exercise discipline. And, of course, here he tells us, he gives us the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Second Timothy 1, and starting with verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So God gives us these, these awesome gifts, and some commentators feel that the Apostle Paul was trying to encourage Timothy, that Timothy might have been uh, an individual who, who was a little shy and uh, who was not aggressive and was being exhorted to have more boldness in the faith. The NIV has, instead of sound-mindedness, has the spirit of self-discipline. The NASB has discipline. RSV has self-control. Uh, Moffat has discipline. Uh, William Barclay makes this comment uh, on the Second Timothy. There was self-discipline. Someone has defined it as the sanity of saintliness. I was talking to Mr. Weston one time. He was wondering, why is it that 
some of our brethren, and many in the world, are so far off base and believe in a flat earth when all the evidence is to the contrary. I said to Mr. Weston, it's because they lack sound-mindedness. So we thank God that we can have uh, sound-mindedness. But Barclay goes on to say that there was self-discipline. Someone has defined it this way, the sanity of saintliness. So God has given us that saintliness. It is Christ alone, he writes, that self-mastery, which will keep us alight from being swept away and from running away. No man can ever rule others unless he first mastered himself. It is self-control which makes a man a great ruler of others because he is first of all, he is first of all the servant of Christ and master of himself. That's from the letters to Timothy Titus and Philemon by William Barclay. And yes, we will be ruling others. We are being trained as kings and priests, but we must first learn to rule ourselves. But now Second Timothy 1 and verse 6. Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Again, uh, several major points in this. We won't take too much time, but the laying on of hands demonstrates again God's government. And there is discipline in God's church. We may comment on that, <clears throat> that a little later. So re- realizing some of the commentators mention he's not that that the fire had failed in Timothy. No, it isn't a start from scratch. It means that he has a little fire in him, but you need to stoke that fire. You need to stir up that fire. Uh, John Stott states it this way, However much or little we have received from God, either directly or natural, and spiritual endowment, or indirectly through parents, friends, and teachers, we must still apply ourselves to active self-discipline to cooperate with God's grace to keep fanning the inner fire into flame. So the Greek word in 2 Timothy 1.6 for stir up has the idea of rekindling a flame. Otherwise, we shall not be men and women. God wants us to fulfill the ministry he has given us to exercise. So pray for the gift of sound-mindedness. Pray for these gifts that He's given us, power, love, the sound mind, or as the Greek word sophronismos is the word for sound mind, can also be rendered discipline. So I'll comment on that a little later. But pray for the gift of discipline. What are some of the applications of discipline? Well, we've already commented some on athleticism. Uh, Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary gives this definition of discipline. To train by instruction and control, uh, 1 Corinthians 9.27. The biblical concept of discipline has both a positive side, instruction, knowledge, and training, and a negative aspect, correction, punishment, and reproof. Those who refuse to submit to God's positive discipline by obeying His laws will experience God's negative discipline through His wrath and judgment. So how do you discipline yourself, and what are some of the ways of disciplining? It's interesting to note that 
the word discipline is applied to us as disciples. Uh, Dr. Jeff Fall wrote the booklet, uh, Successful Parenting God's Way. He writes on page 16, Christ's early followers who were being trained in the way of life were called disciples. The word disciple is derived from the word discipline. Christ taught the disciples. He encouraged them and sometimes corrected them. His goal was to train disciples who could live and teach the Christian discipline, the way of life. That's from Dr. Fall's book, Successful Parenting, uh, page 16. So how do you apply discipline in your life? I think of time after I went out to Ambassador College that uh, what my routine was. By the way, I just want to ask, I'll to do a survey. How many of you have a regular root morning routine, and it's just a disciplined routine every morning. I see your hands. Okay, good. Well, that looks like probably about 73.5% uh, of you have a, a regular disciplined routine. And it, it, it makes life easy. You don't have a crisis every morning. I'll comment on that a little later. But I know as an ambassador student, I would roll out of bed I uh, had actually as a freshman, like because of an older student, I guess they gave me a single room. I would roll out of bed and, and uh, pray. I remember setting the alarm one time, and, and uh, I, I guess my body chemistry knew exactly because my arm was always coming, always coming down to hit the alarm, and it just went off and bingo. So uh, I don't know how that happened, but I would uh, get out of bed and pray half an hour. And uh, then I exercise, do, do push-ups and sit-ups. Um, then I would shower, and I would sing in the shower because I was taking voice lessons. And then I would read the news, go over to the teletype machine where uh, the instantaneous news were coming in. And then I would socialize at breakfast uh, early up at Mayfair. And then I would come back and listen to the World Tomorrow radio broadcast that was on at 7.30 every morning and uh, in my dormitory, and then leave for my 8 o'clock class. So the habit of praying every morning, and uh, had that sometimes I would pray in the back of uh, uh, Ambassador Hall by the Italian gardens, and just so beautiful, the fountains and the gardens, and uh, I think, by the way, uh, Ambassador Hall, I believe, has been uh, sold, and it was up for sale for $6.8 million. Uh, I think it sold for quite a bit less. Uh, but just amazing the history uh, back there in Pasadena. And, of course, when I was out there praying, sitting on the uh, monuments out there in the Italian garden, just enjoying my prayer and the beautiful surroundings, then Dr. Meredith said in class, well, you need to be praying. Those who are going to grow and be spiritual leaders need to be praying a half an hour on their knees. Well, I was not praying a half an hour on my knees. I was enjoying the, the garden. But then I started praying a half an hour on my knees, and, and I don't know, I, I think it was, I, I can't say for sure, but I think it was about 20 or 30 years uh, that I did not miss a day uh, praying uh, a half an hour on my knees, even when we had about 20 ambassador men sleeping on uh, the floor of a minister in Phoenix there. Um, I can name... Anyway, I thought, how am I going to 
get my half an hour prayer in, all these guys sleeping. Well, at 2.30 in the morning, uh, the 20 of us sleeping on the, 20, I guess, maybe 15, the men sleeping on the minister's uh, living room floor, uh, I got up at 2.30 and got my half an hour prayer in on my knees while all the other guys were sleeping. So I didn't let one day go by for a long time. And then, of course, I had some uh, physical problems with my back and knees and I was unable to pray on my knees regularly. So it's a habit that we have. We have a discipline in our spiritual life. We have discipline in other aspects of life. Athletes, you know, are very disciplined, whether it's football or track or basketball or even in golf. I know when we had the uh, summer education program in Big Sandy, I would think that was the summer of 1983. I was assisting uh, someone with uh, golf, and they said, Here's the principle of golf, rhythm, pace, and balance. And I thought, what a wonderful principle that's been helpful, not only just in golf, but other areas of life as well. And then, of course, you had some of our own high school students back in San Diego. One of our high school uh, women uh, at the high school would go swimming at the high school from five to seven, five days a week. Uh, I mean, you, you're putting in quite a bit of time and effort and energy and discipline to go swimming five to seven every morning at the high school because you're on the swim team. And then, of course, later she was on uh, the volleyball team and got a scholarship to another university. But And then you see these marching bands. It's, it's amazing to me. Uh, Texas A&M has this uh, video where you have about 200 musicians all marching and all marching in different directions, crossing one another, and just the slightest uh, mistake would be uh, uh, catastrophic, or at least would cause some accidents. But it's just amazing the discipline that even some of these marching bands have, and, and some others have. We've had, of course, our own students have gone to the LYP adventure hikes, uh, the taking uh, hiking over. Five or six days up on mountains and and uh, through uh, very uh, challenging territory, and then there's the challenge of good health. We apply discipline in our health. I, I was encouraging the ministers uh, in the uh, ministerial conference we had here this past Wednesday. We we had uh, about 225 online for a ministerial conference, which you heard the announcements and it's in your church bulletin. A very inspiring uh, opportunity. But we need to, again, make sure that we're following the laws of radiant health. Uh, I won't turn there, but it says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 8, For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise of the life that now is and that which is to come. And, of course, uh, Dr. Meredith, many years ago, wrote the booklet on seven laws of radiant health. And he listed them in the September-October 2003 uh, Living Church News. I'll just mention them. Uh, The seven laws of radiant health. Number one, eat a proper diet. Number two, exercise. Three, get proper amount of sleep and rest. Four, you ensure you are getting enough sunshine and fresh air. Five, practice cleanliness and wear proper clothing. Six, avoid bodily injury. Seven, 
maintain a positive attitude. So again, we in our lives need to practice discipline. I've been trying to lose some weight, and uh, I, 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 I wrote down in my little lesson book here uh, earlier this year, lesson 19-03, eat one-half. Well, uh, I don't always do that, but uh, it has helped me to lose some weight. And oftentimes, if my wife and I are at a restaurant, we'll split a meal rather than each of us having a full meal. So uh, that's helped. So we apply discipline in our own lives as, where it comes to health. I'm trying to get out and, and even get some sunshine, 10 minutes of sunshine a day. Uh, if, if I can, I'm not getting that much, but trying to for vitamin D. We need to apply the seven laws of radiant health. And I'll again encourage uh, some of you, I've told this story before, but when I had my uh, stroke uh, April 10th uh, this year, I went to a life streaming, life line streaming. It cost about $149, not covered by insurance. Uh, but I went about a few days after my stroke. And they... They called me two days later and said, you have atrial fibrillation. You're going to have a stroke. I said, I already had my stroke. So, but had the point is, had I gone and had that screening ahead of time, I might have been able to take some action uh, to avoid the stroke. So, again, we encourage all of you who can to have a, a family practitioner, uh, that you uh, have at least a health exam once a year, and just do the best that's for husbands and wives if you can do that. And sometimes you have to spend a little extra. If you don't have uh, uh, medical insurance, as, uh, as I did in this particular case, uh, called Lifeline Streaming. And it's, uh, you go on the website and uh, get information on that. The discipline also and the fine arts. And, uh, of course, uh, ballet. We have our little children, little girls doing the ballet at that wonderful uh, music show that we had. And uh, violin, guitar, piano, all those instruments. We have uh, discipline that is necessary even in uh, business. I don't know if I can find that, that quote here. I don't think I'll have that. I'll get that quote a little later uh, from uh, Peter Drucker from the Effective Executive. Uh, how do you handle crises in your own home? How do you handle crises in your home? Then there's academic discipline. Uh, discipline is defined by the Oxford English uh, Dictionary as a branch of learning or scholarly instruction, fields of study as de des uh, defined by academic discipline, provide the framework for a student program of college and post-baccalaureate study, and as such, define the academic world inhabited by scholars. So even we talk about academic discipline. And then there is child-rearing. And uh, even I uh, referred to Dr. Paul's booklet on successful parenting. He uses the word uses the word discipline in his uh, book 34 times. So, uh, again, uh, discipline is something that's good for us. It's good for us because we can find a way of life that is free of pain and suffering and brings about the blessings that we sang just about 
uh, hymn number one, uh, Blessed and Godly is the Man. Well, here's the, uh, a quote I was looking for from the Effective Executive by Peter Drucker. So you may have a, a crisis in your family. It's a Sabbath and uh, the children are not ready. You can't find the clothes for them and and uh, you, you can't find the car keys to go to the car, and you have all kinds of a little crisis before you go to uh, Sabbath services or maybe uh, work in the morning or children going to school in the morning. Here's what Peter Drucker says about crises and how to avoid them. The Effective Executive by Peter Drucker. Quote, A crisis that recurs a second time is a crisis that must not occur again. A recurrent crisis should always have been foreseen. It can therefore either be prevented or reduced to a routine, which clerks can manage. The definition of a routine is that it makes unskilled people without judgment capable of what, doing what it took near genius to do before. For routine puts down in systematic step-by-step form what a very able man learned in surmounting yesterday's crisis. The recurrent crisis is not confined to the lower levels of an organization. It afflicts everyone. So if you're having crisis in your family or in your child rearing, think about what Peter Drucker is saying, that it needs to be put into a routine that even... Of course, as he says, even a... a Unskilled people without judgment uh, can perform. So a recurrent crisis, he says, is simply a symptom of slovenliness and laziness. A recurrent crisis is simply a symptom of slovenliness and laziness. So again, uh, prepare the day before, get the children's clothes selected, uh, Bibles located place near the door of the house. So uh, then there is church discipline. And Dr. Meredith wrote the booklet uh, in the Worldwide Church of God, January 1966, Judging and Discipline. He gives the example of the Apostle Paul, the correction of the Corinthian church. The Apostle Paul exercised, quote, church discipline for the benefit of everyone. And this is uh, what he concludes in his article, Dr. Meredith's article, Judging and Discipline in God's Church. Quote, God holds his minister responsible for teaching you his word and for directing his church and carrying out church discipline. By following God's way of church discipline and judgment, the church of God may go forward in peace and love and will be purged of all sin to be presented, quote, holy and without blemish, end of quote, to Christ at His coming. God is the ultimate authority. So how do you apply authority in your family and community and your marriage? But God is the ultimate authority. So we briefly discuss applications of discipline in the arenas of life, but the most important application is spiritual. Turn to Hebrews, the 12th chapter. Hebrews, the 12th chapter. And uh, as Dr. Meredith wrote on one of the greatest characteristics of conversion, 
is the ability to take correction. He's written about that in the Living Church News. And I know I don't like to be corrected, but I know Jeremiah is it 10.23, Correct me, Lord, not in your anger, but in judgment, lest I be brought to nothing. So even Jeremiah asked for correction. And I, I always hesitate to ask for correction. Uh, but when I do, I say, well, please correct me in mercy. Help me to learn the lessons I need to learn the, the easy way, not the suffering way. Help me to learn what I need to learn. Here in Hebrews 12 and verse 3, we learn you know, godly discipline within the church. Hebrews 12 and starting with uh, verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted the bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to children, as, as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. What? Not be discouraged when you are rebuked by him? For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? So God loves us. And as I quoted from Jeremiah 10 and 24, Jeremiah said, O Lord, correct me, but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. So, brethren, if you do not ask God for correction... I'm talking to myself. <laughs> I'm going to have to ask God for correction now since I haven't done it for a while and uh, ask for mercy. But uh, God will show you some things that you're doing wrong, and because he corrects you, it's going to prevent you from having a worse problem perhaps in the future. And, of course, along the lines of discipline, we think about the seven laws of success and being a profitable servant. I might turn there to... Uh, Luke, the 17th chapter. Luke 17, we think about spiritual discipline and uh, being corrected by God and being on the right track. Dr. Meredith said so many times uh, that in his last years he wanted to learn whatever lesson he needed to learn. Luke 17 and verse 10. So likewise, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what is our duty to do. And so what he's saying here is that we need to be profitable servants. And hopefully you pray that you can be a profitable servant. Do you know the seven laws of success? Um, We have uh, reprint article number 140. Uh, you can ask, uh, I guess here at headquarters, you get uh, uh, ask for it at MPD. Uh, it's called the uh, Seven Laws of Success. It's called Reprint Number 140, Achieving Godly Success. Law number one is set the right goal. Law number two is educate or, pre- or prepare yourself. And law number three is maintain good health. And those who have been to summer camp know that law number four is drive. Thank you. You have to drive yourself and you discipline yourself to do what's right. 
Number five is apply resourcefulness. Number six is persevere towards your goal. And number seven is seek God's continual guidance. So there's that aspect of drive that is a part of you're making yourself do what you know you need to do, but it's tough. You know, you just, uh, there was, in the army there was a song, uh, if I have this, you ever remember this song? Uh, well, it'll come to you later on, but, uh, uh, I, I hate to get, oh, the, the trumpet sounds, you gotta get up, you gotta get up, you gotta get up this morning. It was a kind of the trumpet sound. Uh, there you're still in bed, you don't want to get up, and yet you're in the army, the trumpet sounds, you gotta get out of bed. You have to have that discipline and, and drive. There's another aspect to that, and I guess it's another, another phrase that you can think of, and that's called grit. And uh, just came across a book uh, called The Power and Passion of Perseverance by Angela Duckworth. Uh, grit is the name of the book, The Power of Passion and Perseverance by Angela Duckworth. Uh, she writes on page 8, In some, no matter the domain, the highly successful had a kind of ferocious determination that played out in two ways. Uh, she'd studied uh, what makes someone successful. Uh, how were those at West Point, out of the thousands that applied to West Point, and, and half of those who went to West Point dropped out, and why did the other half persevere? Uh, they had grit. First, these exemplars were unusually resilient and hardworking. Second, they knew in a very, very deep way what it was they wanted. They knew in a very deep way, very, very deep way, what it was they wanted. And I hope you all know what you want. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We had um, the Tomorrow's World Now uh, live on uh, yesterday, Thursday afternoon, Mr. Anthony Stroud. And, of course, hosted uh, by uh, Mr. Dr. Scott. And Mr. Stroud uh, was talking uh, about, uh, about happiness and what, what, what makes you, you happy. And you realize God is the one who gives you happiness. And as Mr. Jonathan Manier said in that, it isn't, happiness is not a goal. Happiness is a byproduct of what you're doing that is right. And if you seek first the kingdom of God, he said, and his righteousness, all these things shall be added to you, remember, he says. But just to repeat the quote, first, these exemplars were unusually resilient and hardworking. Second, they knew in a very, very deep way what it was they wanted. They not only had determination, they had direction. It was the combination of passion and perseverance that made high achievers special. In a word, they had grit. So that's another word you can add to the matter of discipline. Do you have grit? And we know, of course, in Matthew 24, verse 13, he that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. We had uh, several uh, sermons you might want to refer to. uh, Sermon number 179, uh, Build Christian Character by Dr. Meredith. Uh, 893, Persevere to Conquer, uh, Jim, Jim Meredith. 
And when I gave number 925, Philadelphian uh, perseverance. So godly character and discipline are vital. And, vi- and discipline, godly discipline, is vital to godly character. Who do you think of in the Bible that had godly character? And how was it demonstrated? Let's turn to Genesis, the 22nd chapter. Genesis 22, and you know immediately when you say Genesis 22, you're thinking of Abraham and his test with Isaac as uh, being sacrificial. Genesis 26, 22nd chapter. And we'll start with uh, verse 11. He was going to follow through with uh, his obedience to God But, but verse 11, Genesis 22, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So God knew Abraham, and he called him his friend. So how God... Uh, How much does God know about you and your character? Does God know that you fear Him, as He said about about Abraham? How predictable are you? And what is meant by righteous character? Of course, Mr. Armstrong wrote quite a bit about righteous character in his book, Mystery of the Ages, uh, page 69. And that's what we all need. It's the miracle of our conversion to think that God has begotten us as His sons and His daughters, and that we're being transformed into His likeness and into His loving nature. And we'll talk about the Romans 8:29 a little later about that transformation. But Mr. Armstrong wrote in the Mystery of the Ages, page 69. But what do we mean by righteous character? Perfect, holy, righteous character is the ability in such separate entities to come to discern the true and right way from the false, to make voluntarily unconditional surrender to God and His perfect way, to yield to be conquered by God, to determine even against temptation and self-desire to live and do the right, even then such holy character is a gift of God. It comes by yielding to God to instill His law, God's right way of life, within the entity which so decides and wills. You need to want the new covenant. You need to want God's laws to be written on your heart and on your mind. Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10, Jeremiah 31. Actually, this perfect character only comes from God as instilled within the entity of His creation upon voluntary acquiescence, even after severe trial and test. To achieve God's character is voluntary. You need to want it. And you need to understand that you have surrendered totally. You know, when we counsel some for baptism, or sometimes when I do, I say, look, you are giving your whole life to God. And you're giving your time to God. 
If you're going to be baptized, you are totally committed. You are totally surrendered. You can't say, oh, I am totally committed, but I want five seconds of my own time to do my own thing. I'll give you the other 23 hours, 59 minutes, uh, but I want the just one minute for my five minutes for myself. No, you can't do that. And you can't say, well, yes, I'm going to give you my whole body. Remember the Apostle Paul says, I, I beat my body. And so you realize you can't say, okay, I want to give you, Holy Father, I'm going to give you my whole body except for my little finger. No, it's got to be 100%, 100% of your time, 100% of your body, 100% of your will. So that whole process can be brought down into four steps of godly development. Number one, the willingness, the ability to know what is right and wrong. The willingness to know what is right and wrong. And the world basically dismisses that even the very first step. So you find out what is right and wrong. God opens your mind to the Ten Commandments. You know what's right. The Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, you begin to know what is right and what is wrong. And they are absolutes. They are not relative. It's, it's absolute. And that's number one, the willingness to know what is right and wrong. And number two is the commitment to do what is right and wrong. To, to do only what is right. Commitment to do what is right, not wrong. And that's a whole 100% commitment. Then number three is to resist temptation. Now that you've made the commitment to live this way of life, then temptations come along. But you need to, number three, resist all those temptations and, and be consistent in that resisting of the temptation, just as Jesus resisted Satan, knowing Matthew 4 and Luke 4. You can read those. And number four, you practice what is right until it becomes a part of your very nature, your very character. This is the way. It isn't difficult for you to smile. It isn't difficult for you to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. It isn't difficult to you to pray for one another because that you've already made that a part of your godly character. And that's what we need to be doing daily, growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. John Stott writes in a concerning 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 27 about needing to run the race. He said, I... Paul writes that he subdues his body literally. I lead my body around as a slave. So we have a disciplined, purposeful life. So we need to have that godly character, that total, total commitment. Another key for growing in a godly character is that is fulfilling your calling. Let's turn to Ephesians 2 and verse 8. Ephesians 2 and verse 8. So we've seen four steps of godly development, and we need that discipline, perseverance, need that grit, which is a passionate perseverance. Ephesians 2 and verse 8, of course, is the, what the Protestants use as their key to salvation and misinterpret this whole section. Ephesians 2, uh, verse 8. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And of course, you've read uh, Dr. Meredith's book on the plain truth about the Protestant Reformation. Uh, we you probably read all the uh, eight chapters leading up, well, the seven chapters leading up to the eighth chapter, which is only available in the book itself. So I hope you've read the final chapter in this book on the plain truth about the Protestant Reformation. But he points out, of course, that Luther said it's by faith, it added the Latin word sola, alone, that you're saved by faith alone. Um, Luther disobeyed God by changing the Scripture. It does not say that in the Scripture. And, of course, some say we are saved by grace alone. Well, notice that it's not by grace alone or by faith alone, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that of yourselves it is a gift of God. So both the faith and the grace are gifts of God. And, of course, as you know later on, it's the faith of Christ that saves us. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. So they stop there and don't read verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so God expects us to have works. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. One commentary against Stott uh, makes this interesting insight on this scripture. What are we now? We are God's workmanship. The Greek word is poema, which means his work of art, his masterpiece. You are a work of art. You are God's masterpiece. That's the word poema. Uh, which is translated here, workmanship. You are God's work of art. You are His masterpiece. You are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So, brethren, we, the people of God, the saints, are the masterpiece of God's creation. In fact, uh, we have a sermon number 129 is titled, uh, God's Masterpiece of Creation, uh, Sermon Number 664, Growing in Godly Character, 667, Character, Fulfill Your Calling, uh, Character in Your Emotions, uh, Number 720, and Dr. Douglas Winnell's Sermon Number 1028, The Importance of Character. So God is creating in you and me and and did, and Mrs. Brun, beautiful character. We want to radiate God's love, joy, and peace. In fact, um, character is a subject even of a book, uh, I Dare You. Uh, this is, was written back in the uh, 60s. Um, William Danforth was the founder of Ralston Perina Company. He wrote this book, I Dare You. You think tall, stand tall, smile tall, live tall. But as a whole section on I dare you to build character. He writes, lift your thoughts above the commonplace. Think on noble things. Soon as you are on a higher level, if you consider religion something to be put up with, it becomes a drudgery. 
exercises and study are a drudgery to the one with the wrong mental attitude. But if you consider the building of character or ethics or moral or religion, whatever you choose to call it, as an opportunity to grow, then the unseen things of life take on a new significance. Now, this is a really good book I recommend for teenagers and, uh, you know, anyone in life, for, for example. But he has uh, the chapters. Let me just read uh, some of the chapter headings here for you. Um, I dare you. I dare you to adventure. I dare you to do things. Reminds me of Mr. Uh, Rod McNair's uh, Living Church News article, Tomorrow's World article, Do the Tough Things, I believe it's something along that line. Uh, I dare you to be strong. I dare you to think creatively. I dare you to develop a magnetic personality. I dare you to build character. I dare you to share. So uh, it's a good book, and uh recommend that for some teenagers. Let's turn to Romans 8, verse 29. Romans 8, 29. It's uh, the fundamental verse on our transformation and what kind of character we need to develop. As Mr. Armstrong wrote, yes, character in itself is a gift from God, but we have our part in that process of developing godly character. Romans 8, we'll start off with verse 28. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Of course, we do have a sermon by that title, Romans 8, 28. Verse 29, For whom He foreknow, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. So we are predestined, that it means God has called us at this time in His plan of salvation in these 6,000 years. He's called us to be conformed to the image of His Son. It means we must be conformed to His character. We are transformed. And we have the day of Pentecost. It actually is a day of conversion, a day of transformation. And we are in that process of being more completely conformed to the very mind, character, and nature, and mind of Christ. Reformed to the very character and image of His Son. So we have a life of overcoming. We realize that the the process of growing in godly character is that we discipline ourselves and we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. I came across this quotable quote. I was surprised to find it. Uh, by actress Julie Andrews. Quote, Some people regard discipline as a chore. For me, it is a kind of order that sets me free to fly. <laughs> End of quote. So I thought it was a pretty good quote. So ask God to create in you His perfect, righteous character. Psalm 51. We all know that one. Psalm 51. Hope this is part of your prayer from time to time and in the process of practicing godly discipline and growing in godly character. Psalm 51. Of course, that's David's psalm of repentance. That's the beautiful, beautiful psalm. 
Psalm 51 and verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. But he's asking God to create in him something. To create in him actually godly character. A clean heart being symbolic of godly character as well. So how do we grow in that grace and knowledge? We have to discipline our spirit, ourselves spiritually with the, the, as all of us know, to have the prayer, Bible study, fasting, and meditation. But let's turn while we're here in Psalm 51, Psalm 55, although the page, verse 16, and of course we sing this, this hymn from time to time, Psalm 55 and verse 16. As for me, I will call upon God, and the Eternal will save me, shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. So I hope that you are making a habit of that, or praying instantaneously, as he tells us in First Thessalonians 5, be instant prayer and, and to pray without ceasing. And of course, Daniel in the lion's den, in Daniel 6 and verse 10, that he prayed three times a day, you know, even though the judgment had gone out from the, from the king to be put in the lion's den. He still prayed his three times a day. We need to discipline ourselves spiritually in making sure that we're staying close to God and we're going to have the spiritual fruits of Galatians, the fifth chapter, the fruits of God's Holy Spirit and that we're dedicated to fulfill the mission that Christ has given the church. And we discipline ourselves to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and to fulfill the great commission of preaching the gospel to the world. Of course, as it says in Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel shall be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. And God has given us that privilege and responsibility to preach the gospel. We will be facing dangers, and Mr. Wesson has been warning us about that. Uh, the current Tomorrow's World magazine talks about the dangers that come, can come upon us suddenly. And we need to prepare in advance so that we know that, yes, when terrible things happen, God is still with us and that Christ promises that I will never leave you nor forsake you, as he says in Hebrews 13. And I will be with you to the end of the age, as he says in Matthew 28. So we have those promises that even when surprising things happen, that we have a different kind of courage. In fact, we just got the July-August Tomorrow's World magazine, and Mr. Wesson has an article titled, A Different Kind of Courage. I think of Psalm 46, verse 1, actually was the first song, the hymn we sang today in Sabbath services, uh, God is Our Refuge. I'll just read it, Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear even though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, see law. 
Though God is our refuge and our strength. And you want to read that article on courage by Mr. Weston in the August Tomorrow's World magazine. You'll probably be getting that in the mail in the next couple of weeks. And some of you have already got a digital copy via email. So keep up your prayers. Make sure that you're exercising godly discipline. Thank God for sound-mindedness and pray that you can grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Admiral William H. McRaven, a naval seal for 36 years, wrote in his book, Make Your Bed. He stated, if you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. Though practicing daily discipline and godly discipline will lead to abundant living in Christ, as he promised in John 10 and verse 10. But God has not called us now to change the world. He's called us to shine our lights in a dark world and witness the truth and to preach the gospel and to warn the Israelite nations of the great tribulation to come. Yes, we can turn many to righteousness, as it tells us in Daniel 12 and verse 3. We are disciples of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God expects us to practice godly discipline and to recapture true values in sports, art, literature, business, science, entertainment, family, society, academics, and, and doing His work and in doing His will. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have pre preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So, brethren, pray for the gift of discipline. Pray for the gift of sound-mindedness. And may God bless all of you, beginning a day with a task completed and living each day with godly love, godly service, and godly discipline. Practice godly discipline, and you will grow in godly character.